each kid is different. Each person is different. And even kids raised in the same home get different parents. Because the way you were with the first child versus the second versus the third versus the fifth, you are a different person. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Hey, you guys, you are in for a treat. We have Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart on today. She is a pediatric psychologist, a parent coach, an author, and a speaker. This conversation, after it finished, Abby and I just were blown away by how tangible it was. We give examples that are happening in our life right now. For example, one of my children is afraid to fly. And so we spent part of the episode talking through how do you help your children through these fears instead of avoiding them. So this one is so great. I wish I had it earlier, but without further ado, here is Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart. Dr. Lockhart, we'd love to dive right into your expertise on how to handle our kids' fears and anxiety. And then more importantly, how do we even start to navigate it? I mean, we understand that a lot of these fears, they start when our kids are little, but it's hard because sometimes we can look at it as parents and think, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. So what's your best advice when these types of situations come up? Great question and a great topic. This is one of my favorites. Um, I think we have to make sure that we uh, have an understanding of the difference between regular fears and worries and when it becomes anxiety. Because we use a lot of these words as the same, and I think it's important to have a good distinction. So so first of all, fears are are normal. It's You should be afraid of things that are scary or dangerous or unsafe, and we want our kids to have fears, healthy fears. However, it becomes more anxiety when it impacts impairment, um, impacts functioning rather, and because it's impairment. So that's the technical term that we use in psychology is like when it causes clinically significant impairment in multiple areas of functioning. <laughs> so meaning that our kid can't go to school without you screaming and crying for sep- over, you know, being separated from you, uh, not able to go to their swim classes because they're so deathly afraid of the water. Um, not wanting to interact in social situations and never wanting to go out. Like it's when it's really impacting their ability to show up is when we're looking at, okay, this is not just a regular fear. This has become like really big and blown really big to the point where they can't even function in everyday activities or everyday life. Mm, that's so interesting. And some of the examples you gave spoke to me right away because they're things that I've experienced. For example, our five-year-old, he was so scared. Now I'm like not knowing if I'm using the right word, but he's so nervous about his little brother in the swim lesson. Like he really thought that his little brother was going to drown because he knows he can't swim well yet. And it was like he was having a very, very heightened reaction, but it was for his brother, um, which was really interesting. And this same kiddo, we're going on our first flight as a family in June, and he's already very nervous about it. He says that he doesn't want to go. He wants to stay with his grandma and grandpa because he doesn't want to fly. He's very scared of flying. So I wanted to know what mantras might we use to help him start to wrap his mind around because we really want him to come and to be able to board that flight. Of course. So is, does he tend to have more of a scanning the environment, extra cautious type of temperament? Is that how we normally? It's interesting because sometimes yes. And then sometimes no, like he'll, he'll do really daring things. We actually consider him to be the one that'll, you know, when we go rock climbing, he's like going straight up the rock, but then in certain situations, like his brother swimming or talking about airplanes, he's way more anxious than his brothers. 
Okay. Okay. So, okay. A few things. One is with the anxiety over the brother and the swim lessons that to me, I would probably say something to him like, well, yeah, you're worried that he may not be safe in the water because he can't swim yet. That makes sense to me. It's okay to be afraid of something that's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And so kind of validating and normalizing it because it's a fear that makes sense given the circumstances. Because what we don't want to accidentally reinforce for kids is what's wrong with you? Why you're free? It's not a big deal. Get over mm-hmm. it. Because it is a scary kind of situation. He doesn't know how to swim and he's in the water. So I'm afraid. Okay, that makes sense to me. So really validating it, but not making him avoid and not um, telling him to just dismiss it or to ignore it, just validating and acknowledging it. I find the biggest thing with fears and worries is people try to cover it up with stuff or try to ignore it or try to um, uh, distract from it. And we want to just face it, face it for what it is and acknowledge it for what it is. So that's what I would say with that. With the flying thing, what I have found with people and flying specifically is they're not so much afraid of flying. They're afraid of dying. Mm. Because when you kind of break it down, I think it's important to really ask, okay, so, you know, going on the plane, you're really, really, it sounds like you're telling me that you're afraid of going on the plane. Yeah. Okay. So tell me what's so scary about it. What about it is scary to you? And Can I, I give say, you his answer? Yes. Tell me. Okay, perfect. He says he doesn't understand how he's going to get any fresh air. Huh. Which I was like, that's a very logical way to think about things. Yeah. So I would then feed his curiosity by looking that up. So Mm -hmm. that's a great question. Let's look it up. How does fresh air get into a plane when it's so far up? That's a great question. Look it up. And then... So then that way, that kind of intellectual curiosity that's feeding that emotional fear can hopefully be satisfied by just having that information. Because sometimes I find fears occur with people and specifically kids because they don't have enough information. Sometimes they have too much information, but sometimes it's just the basic information, like not having enough air. Well, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. How would you get air? You know, it's really interesting too, because one day he came up to me and he said, mom, I've been thinking about it a lot and I trust myself to fly. And then, you know, then the next week he'll come up and he'll go back to like, not feeling like he wants to do it. So as a parent, you're like, it's hard to figure out how I can support you when you keep changing your mind about it, which I also totally understand because a lot of us do that. Of course, of course. And again, all of that requires that validation. Just saying, you know, one day you felt super brave and the next day, ah, you weren't too sure. Hmm. That happens to me too. Sometimes I'm super sure about something and the next day I'm like, ah, no, hard pass. So again, it's really a lot of that flip floppy stuff that kids do. They need to also understand that as grownups, we do that too. And really helping them understand that. Like, like the other day I was writing with my 10 year old son and we were going to a place that I've gone to a lot, but he hasn't. It was a restaurant. And he was like, hey, I have a question. It seems like driving can be a little scary sometimes. And I was like, well, sometimes if you're not sure where you're going, you might feel a little confused or concerned about where you're going. He's like, so how does how does your mind know where to go? And I was like, huh, that's a good question. And I said, I create like a mental map in my head of where the place is because I've been there many times. And if it's a place I haven't been to, I use my GPS to guide me, but I might still feel nervous because I'm not sure where I'm going. And he's like, oh, so again, it's being able to like acknowledge that, yes, this is how I might feel, but this is what I do when I feel this. My daughter has that exact same fear. So with the fact that you brought that up, I'm like, that's exactly what our seven-year-old says is, mom, how do you know where to go? And I'm like, actually, I usually don't know where I'm supposed to go. (laughs) That's why I have my phone right here. It tells me the directions. She's afraid of becoming a teenager because she doesn't know how to drive. So those are the things that that she correlates with it. But then, and I'm glad that you brought up some of these things because I definitely have said the wrong stuff once in a while. And now I know, hey, there are easier ways that we can go through this to make, to ease their minds, to ease their little tiny Mm -hmm. minds. 
Um, yeah. One of the things that we love about your account and about your information is that you help parents discover what's behind certain behaviors that their child has. And you yes. also help, how can we support these kiddos when they're having these behaviors? So let's start to dive into a few. And you had just mentioned one of them when you're asking Amy about her child's just disposition with, does he have extra caution or extra anxious feelings? So for the kids out there that are extremely cautious, that do have those feelings that are more anxious, how can we best support them? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think it's when we're always looking at every child will have a natural personality that they gravitate towards. And we notice it from a very young age. And I think we want to normalize however they show up in the world, because many times kids feels, feel like freaks of nature because this person is doing great. This person is doing great. You know, like how my, my son was thinking as an adult, you just know where to go. You know, they just assume these things and they project them onto all these people that everybody else knows what they're doing except me. So I think it's really about helping them understand who they are and really embracing who they are and, and all of the stuff, the, the strengths and the weaknesses, but also helping them to build up those areas that they feel less confident in. So if they, you notice someone who is just a little bit more unsure, then again, always going back to the validating it. Yeah, of course, you're not too sure about this thing. That makes sense to me. So do you think you want to challenge and uh, be a little brave today? Or do you want to be like, no, I think I need a little bit more support today. And so really giving them the option to know whether or not they want to face something or whether they may need extra support, but not the avoidance. The avoidance is not an option because avoidance feeds fear every single time. So we don't want them to avoid. So Amy, even with your little kiddo who's not sure about flying, I don't think not letting him fly is a good option because that's going to feed the avoidance. He needs to face it with your support. And I've had parents tell me this online. They're like, you know, that's abuse, you know, making kids face their fears. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. It's, it's neglectful not to allow them to face their fears because what you're doing is you're reinforcing and you're saying, oh yeah, I'm not allowing you to face it because it really truly is something dangerous and scary and something I don't want you to do. Um, so we're just going to let you not do it. And we we need to allow our kids to lovingly and in a supportive way, face the thing that they're trying to avoid. That is so, so important when dealing with anxiety and fears. It's really interesting too, because for me, like I'm I feel myself being worried that he might, he sometimes will have this extremely big reaction where he is like almost out of his body. He's like hulking out and I'm scared that that's going to happen on the plane because it would make me feel very uncomfortable to have, you know, to have everyone looking at you and like, I'm trying to support him the best I can. So there is this like unknown factor that I think is also scary for parents. Definitely. And I think that's why, you know, talking through those things, talking about through scenarios and like on a very practical way, I think really helping kids understand, okay, imagine in your mind, because that's where a lot of anxiety is coming from is things you're making up in your mind anyway. So, okay. What if we were to get to the airport? What do you think you would feel? What can you do? What if we're starting to board the plane? Then what? What if, and like really kind of talking through these different scenarios and having him imagine it in his mind so that he can work it out in his mind and create this whole script in a sense so that he knows what he needs to do and what he wants you to do. Well, then what if we get on the plane and you're just like, "Uh uh-uh, the door is closed and I'm like, I can't handle this. Then what? Then what can you do? What can mommy do? And playing those things out because we're doing it anyway and we're filling in the gaps anyway. So we really want to help our kids play those things out so that they can imagine what they can do in the best case, worst case, ideal scenario. That's really helpful, especially in cases of anxiety. 
And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp has helped over 2 million people and counting, and the Herself community has made up a lot of those individuals. We love hearing stories about how BetterHelp counselors have helped you as individuals, as couples, as families, and through a lot of different challenges. It's not just one thing. If you're dealing with family struggles, or if you're dealing with anxiety or depression, or if you're dealing with marriage challenges, or if there's something with work that is stressing you out, I mean, a BetterHelp counselor can help you through all of it. And what I love about it is that it's so convenient. Instead of driving all the way across town, waiting in a cold waiting room and having to be there in person, I can just give my BetterHelp therapist a phone call or talk to them through an online video feature. So if therapy has been on your mind, look to BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash herself. As a podcast listener, you do get 10% off your first month. And again, that link is betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herself. You can be matched within just a few days and start your mental health journey with a licensed mental health therapist today. Now let's get back to our show. I love the support that you're giving my family right now, but I'm sure other people also have these same situations. And something that I see is people tip towards, well, your brother's fine. Like, why are, why are you worried about it? Your brother is absolutely, your brother's younger than you and he's fine going. And Abby and I have always called out on the podcast of like, each child is really an individual and that comparison or like that shaming that your younger brother is fine with it isn't helpful. Could you talk about that and why that wouldn't be a helpful way to go about it? Yes, you're absolutely correct. Because each kid is different. Each person is different. And even kids raised in the same home get different parents. Because the way you were with the first child versus the second versus the third versus the fifth, you are a different person. I was a different parent when I had my first versus two years, four months later when I had my second. I was more neurotic with my first one. I was like, oh my gosh, her her pinky fell. Let's wash it and disinfect it. (laughs) With my son, I was like, okay, whatever, he'll live. (laughs) Like we're different parents with each one. And so we also have to expect that each kid is going to be different. So yeah, maybe the sister, maybe the other brother deals with stuff that would, you know, terrify the other one and that's okay. So I don't think that comparison is a good thing and it's actually feels very defeating. And I think, again, when, before we say things as parents, as an adult, we have to really think about like, how would we feel if someone said that about us in our workplace in the podcast. Well, you know, so-and-so has the same podcast for just as long as you and they have like a million views. Like, what's up with that? (laughs) Like, that doesn't feel good. You know, well, you know, so-and-so he was doing fine until you showed up. I remember we used to get that at the daycare. Oh, they were fine until you showed up. Mm, Yeah. I was like, great. That helps me a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thanks. That makes me feel real good. Right. And so we're comparing ourselves to situations all the time anyway. And it doesn't help our kids to hear that. So we have to avoid that comparison language because it brings about a lot of shame messages. They internalize that message as there's something wrong or flawed about me that needs to be fixed. And that's why I'm being compared. And that's why that's so dangerous to do Mm. and not helpful. And if you've done it, like, we're just going to go forward from here. You know, like that's the thing about our podcast. That's the thing about you. It's like, we're just trying to give you good information. You know, no shame if you've done that. I'm sure we've all been there. Okay, so now I want to talk about, and this question is really interesting to me, how to navigate rebellious children. Where is the rebellion coming from? Are we even supposed to wrangle it? Like we've been hearing, I feel like now that there's so much messaging out there on parenting, I feel like we hear mixed messages of like, no, this is their superpower. We need rebellious people in the world. But we also at some level need our family to be able to function too. So I would love to hear your thoughts on rebellion, where it comes from and what to do. Yes. Are we talking about any particular age here? We have a lot of listeners that I would say have toddlers and then also we're starting to move into school age. So, you know, these kindergartners, first graders. Yeah. Okay. So rebellious is a label and really honestly a judgment because sometimes we see that in people and we're like, wow, they're so assertive. Oh, they're so aggressive. Oh, they're so strong-willed. We have lots of different words to describe the same kind of behavior depending on who's showing it, honestly. So with toddlers, 
toddlers are dysregulated, irrational, impulsive beings. (laughs) That's who they are. They don't have a fully developed brain. They're learning everything for the first time. They're learning how to walk, how to talk, how to assert their will, how to wipe their bottom, how to feed themselves, how to say no. Like everything is new. So when they start to realize, oh, I don't have to be carried around all the time. I don't have to be taken out of my crib. I don't have to eat this yucky stuff. (laughs) I can have my own opinions and I'm a person separate from my caregiver. That rebelliousness is an individuation. I'm becoming my own individual separate from this person who's been taking care of me that I've relied on all the time. And so there's this push-pull between being independent and also relying on you for my survival. So I don't think it's rebelliousness. I think it's this aha moment that I'm my own person. And so going through it's mine, no, stop it, quiet, shut up phases that toddlers go through, it's normal. That's just who they are. That's part of their developmental stage. Is it highly annoying and irritating and embarrassing? Absolutely. (laughs) But that's, it's a normal developmental stage, honestly. So I don't think it's so much the why behind it, but it's more that because it's, it's a normal developmental stage. And I don't think it's so much rebelliousness. I think it's more of, I'm an individual and I'm now, I have my own willpower that I can assert. And you nailed it right there. It can be so frustrating when they are finding themselves, but you just said it so beautifully. Like they are finding themselves. They're figuring out who they are as human beings. And if we constantly are trying to squash that, we're also squashing their ability to figure out their truest version of themselves, which isn't that what we want. We want our kids to be who they really want to be at their core, even if it means driving us a little bit crazy sometimes. Yes. But you know, also too, I think with the rebelliousness for the older kids, I think it's a little bit different. It's more like the school age. It's more, maybe it's a lack of connection. Maybe they need more connection with the parent or caregiver. Maybe they don't feel seen and heard in other places where they want to feel noticed and important and seen. Um, Maybe they feel lonely and isolated. So I think those reasons get a little bit deeper and we have to go beyond the behavior and speak to the need that's driving it. Yeah. And that's where we can step in as parents. Yes. being frustrated and annoyed, which we can still have those feelings, but instead just using that and walking away, sitting down with them, even if it's five minutes and figuring out if that can help the need that they may be, maybe not having right then. Right. Let's tap into a different one. And this might be for kids that are more school age. Although I think that some kids who are younger might have this feeling of being unmotivated. You're looking at them. You're like, why can't you just get your shoes on? Why can't you just read like you're supposed to? Why can't you finish your homework? And as parents, I mean, like, I know those thoughts go through my mind when I'm in like a go, go, go rush type of mentality, but how can we better understand and support a child who might just feel unmotivated or be unmotivated in the moment? We just had a discussion with our kids this weekend about this. Mm, (laughs) So yes, they're 10 and 12. And that's the same thing we were saying. My husband was like, okay, this is what we're expecting you all to do. What's getting in the way of you taking your trash down on the, in the weekends or cleaning up your room or like what's, what's getting in the way. I think we have to make sure as parents, again, with the labels, we stay away from lazy. I hear that often. Oh, my kid is so lazy. That's why they're not doing blank. I, I, again, let's try to move away from those terms because that's a label. It's a judgment call and we're not getting to the real reason of what's driving it. And what they said was um, that they just want to relax, for example, on the weekends, that they don't want to have to do things because it messes up their relaxation type. (laughs) So then we broke it down. We're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I want to relax on the weekends too. But when you look at what we're asking you to do, how much time does it really take? Let's break it down. Okay, it takes 20 minutes to put away my laundry, five minutes to wipe down the bathroom countertop, 30 seconds to take the trash outside. Okay. And how much time do you have on a Saturday? Oh, we have like hours. Okay. So looking at how much time we expect and how much time you have, don't you think you have tons of free time? Yeah. So if we could take an hour out of that day, what is that in the scheme of your free time? Oh, it's not that much. Yeah. So I think when you have older school age kids, I think you can take it and break it down into a logical kind of thing and really looking at what's driving their lack of motivation. 
What's behind that? Is it because they don't feel like they have enough free time because they need to get time away from the house? They want to spend more time with friends because they're overwhelmed by the mess. They don't know where to start. So again, we always have to look at like what's going on and then help to drive that conversation. They're not turning in stuff for school or they're not getting homework done. Like what's getting in the way? I've heard from kids, oftentimes they'll say things like, well, I don't do my homework because I feel like it's going to take forever. So that's time, a time uh, concept issue for them. Or I suck at math. And so I'm like, what's the use? I'm going to fail anyway. So then they feel like they're a failure. And so their efforts are not going to be rewarded anyway. So it's not lack of motivation. There's other things that's driving that behavior. And I think if we can get to the root of it, then we can speak to that instead of the surface behaviors. And that always makes a difference. Mm, I love those topics. And I think that we just got like a nice little look into our future as well. Um, <laughs> our young school ager doesn't love to read. And whenever we ask them, she's always like, I just want to keep on playing. I just want to keep on playing. So instead of forcing her to read, we set up reading as a time for her to play. So we even had a microphone. We set up a, a video because she likes making little fake YouTube videos and she now reads into a camera and then watches herself read afterwards. And it's just I so funny because <laughs> one of our, te- her teacher was like, Hey, she's actually doing better with this because she can hear her words. She can hear when she, um, pauses or when she says the wrong stuff. And I'm like, okay, good. Now we have something figured out. It might not figure out the entire world, but one part of it has been figured out. I love that. It's it's the creativity, thinking outside the box and tapping into your child's strengths and personality and then looking at like what's missing here and then weaving those together. So that's, that's great. Love that example. Mm, Yeah. I loved that example too. And knowing her, she is going to be a YouTuber. She's really loved the camera. (laughs) And now a break from our podcast sponsor, Rothy's. I did a little bit of research before doing this advertisement because Rothy's has been a fan favorite of the Herself podcast and also of my wardrobe for a very long time. But did you know that all of Rothy's shoes and their bags are sustainably made with their signature thread and that they're spun from single-use plastic water bottles? There's actually over 146 million water bottles that have been repurposed to make their shoes and bags and counting. I mean, even some of my favorites, like the flat and the point, they're made from about a 11 recycled water bottles each. Like, how cool is that? And also know that looking good is only half the fun. This kind of effortlessly chic style, it doesn't sacrifice on comfort. Right out of the box, these shoes are just built for comfort. Um, You know how sometimes they'll like get at your heel or the toe will just pinch a little bit too tight? Rothy's doesn't do that and they're made to last. So for stylish and sustainable shoes, make sure that you're shopping Rothy's. And as a Herself podcast listener, you get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash herself. Again, that's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash herself for $20 off your first purchase. All right, let's get back to our show. One thing that we've talked about in the past is this idea that as parents, especially when you're experiencing something for the first time, often we want to jump in and fix it for our kids. But you alluded to this earlier in the episode of when they are in a situation that is safe, like it is okay for us to push them a little bit. Like the flight example, you know, this example and the question is, You know, a child wants to call out sick from school because they don't feel ready for the math test. And as a parent, we can understand what they're feeling, but how do we help them to not miss out on commitments because they are nervous? I know one struggle in my household is our kids will really be motivated, excited to sign up for sports. And then the week to week grind of like actually getting them there. It's like, it feels like we forced them when we, that was never the case. They wanted to sign up and we're trying to hold them to a commitment. Yeah, that's, I hear that very, very often. That's a very common situation because the state of mind you were in when you signed up is a very different state of mind than when you have to go week by week by week by week. So it's normal for that to shift. That's why we make commitments. Oh yeah, I'll hang out with you this weekend. And then the weekend comes, you're like, oh, I'd rather stay home. Right. So that happens all the time. But I, I think it's it's there's a couple of things. One is we want to make sure that 
our kids understand that when you make a commitment to something, it's important to follow through on it. But the other thing is sometimes you make a commitment to something and you're like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. (laughs) So then how do we balance making commitments and following through with obligations and not flaking on people, but also being true to yourself and knowing that sometimes you just made a poor choice because it's not your vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no one right answer to that. I think that's where that conversation comes in with our kid. And saying, okay, I know that you didn't want to do that. I'll do this with kids who come to therapy, for example. And they're like, you know, talking about feelings is not my vibe, Dr. Lockhart. (laughs) So like, okay. So how about we do this? Let's commit to six sessions, just six. This is the goal that we have. And at the end of six sessions, if you feel like this truly sucks, I don't want to continue, then we just stop. But if you realize, you know what, things are getting better, then we commit to six more. It could be the same thing with sports or some commitment. Okay. I know that you don't really like basketball. You had a really, you had some big plans for yourself when we signed up, but you're not liking it anymore. Let's just commit to um, this many games or let's commit to going to practice or to a season. And if you decide not to sign up next year, then we can do that. Um, But being able to have just kind of setting a a start and an end time, especially for kids who are very concrete and literal in their thinking, signing up for something and then thinking it's going to be forever and it's going to last forever. They don't have a sense of time in that way. So if something isn't enjoyable, it feels miserable because they don't know when it's going to end. So Mm. if you can show them on a calendar, okay, we're starting the season on September 1 and it's going to go till December 1. So we have this time period and we're going to have practice this many times and we're going to put it on the calendar. Can we commit to one season? And if you like it, we do it again next year. So I think we just want want to make it very concrete for them and finding ways to get them engaged and help them to stay committed to the things that they commit to. And if they decide that it's not for them, talking about that as well, too. What was it about it that made you think, no, I don't like this anymore? Because we want kids to think through things so we're not always rescuing them and that they feel like they always have an easy pass because mom or dad or grandpa is going to bail me out. And it kind of goes back to that avoidance that we have been talking yep. about throughout this of if you just let them off the hook, so to say, then they know that mom or dad can just save them, can rescue them. So what should we be doing? Any other tips here for the kids that are just really wanting to avoid? Because I know that we deal with that in our in our household too. Instead of supporting and reinforcing that avoidance as a strategy, how can we help them cope when they're just really, really in the thick of it and maybe throwing a tantrum or just not wanting to go? I think you do it the way, like in psychology, how we'll do with um, in child therapy sessions is slow and graduated exposure. And that works a lot with phobias and fears. So for example, with like, let's go back to the swimming example. Years ago when my son and daughter were going to go into swimming lessons and my son hates to get uh, water on his face. And so we would say, okay, and he didn't want to do the swimming thing. I was like, well, you got to learn how to swim. So you got (laughs) to, so let's just go to the pool And like, let's just sit, let's just sit and watch. And then next time we went, okay, let's just put your toes in the pool. All right. Let's just put half your body in the pool. Let's put, go up to your shoulders. Let's go up to your mouth. Okay. And then let's splash. All right. Now let's put your face in and come out. Okay. Now let's dunk and come out. Let's stay down and hold your breath and come out like slow and graduated exposure. So it's kind of like what they call systematic desensitization, where you're systematically, slowly over time, exposing them to the feared thing until it's no longer a big deal. And that's what I would say would work really well for things that they are avoiding, because in that way, it gives them the opportunity to face that fear, but in slow and really purposeful ways. Um, And then that way, they're able to embrace it and not feel like they're kind of buckling when those things are happening. So I think that works really, really well. And so even like with, uh, I do this um, a lot with kids who have to go to the hospital and, you know, um, where we just go by, okay, now let's have a picnic at the hospital. Let's bring a favorite snack and just sit there without going to the doctor's office. All right, now let's go inside the room. Okay. Now, so it's that slow and graduated thing where you can have like five or six or 10 steps to the thing that they're afraid of. Until it's no longer a big deal because now they've habituated to it and it's not, it's just a, it's a new habit and it's not a big deal anymore. Mm. It's really interesting because a lot of things in parenthood are not necessarily black or white. And we understand that there are times where the kiddo is 
they really do need just like the rest of us. Like we as a society have been like, you know, we need mental health days. Like there are days where you're just not supposed to be forced out of the nest. Like it's actually better for you to rest and recharge. Is there any way for us to tell, to delineate when we're looking at this kiddo and we're like, we actually think that the best choice is for them not to go to practice today? Yeah, I think that's where you have an honest and open conversation about it because like I've I've spoken to people before about this, when you look at avoidance strategies or, or avoidance behaviors versus coping strategies, they look very similar. So sleeping in for the day might be a good coping strategy because you need rest, but it could also be avoidance because your butt needs to get up and do your taxes. <laughs> Taking a mental health day could be a good coping strategy for your kid or taking a break from practice could be a good coping strategy because it's just too much for me. And I just, I'm not ready to do it today, but it can also be avoidance because you're not dealing with the thing that's actually driving your avoidance because maybe they're avoiding because they have social anxiety. Social anxiety doesn't get better by avoiding social situations. It gets worse, right? Or performance anxiety or test anxiety. Um, or, you know, being in a crowded area, all of those things are reinforced by not doing it. So we always have to look at, okay, am I helping my kid avoid or is this a good coping skill? And talking to them about that and just saying, again, do we want to beat this fear today? Or are you feeling like, you know what, it's not for me. I need a few, some extra support. How can I support you today then? So that way it's not just a straight up avoidance, that it's actually an intentional decision. Where were you when we were kids? I feel like we would have just learned so much. Um, I'm getting my, my own therapy right now as an adult, just thinking back to my the child version of myself and the things that we can be working on just day in and day out with our family as adults and as children. And I feel like we're giving our audience so many strategies right now. So I wanted to circle back on one that you brought up at the beginning because you spoke about this with um, Hoda and Jenna on the Today Show about role playing and how parents can use this tool when preparing their kids for different situations. And we kind of breezed past it, but let's go into some more detail on it right now. Explain how do we even start with using this idea? And are there different situations that role-playing is better in? Is there ones that we can use it for all the time? Okay. So yes, that was such a fun experience. Um, I think honestly, role-playing works for any situation because the reason for that is our brain is like a filing cabinet, a storage unit where it files different experiences in our brain so that we can access it later on. It's what we call schema in psychology. And our schema is the thing that we go to so that we're like, oh, I know how to deal with a bully or, oh, I know how to deal with test anxiety or I know how to deal with a presentation that I didn't prepare for. <laughs> like I know how to deal with it because I've had that experience. But experience doesn't always occur with actual experience. That's the in vivo experience. There's also what we call imaginal exposure. And imaginal exposure is in our imagination. And lots of our experiences occur in our imagination, which is why people have panic attacks. Because you think of all the crap that can go wrong, which is why you start to hyperventilate and pass out and feel faint. Because you've made up the scenario in your head. So for kids, a lot of ex- uh, role-playing exposure can first occur through their imagination, like I talked about earlier, like the what if, then what scenario. But the role-playing can be like where you're in vivo in real life playing out a scenario. And I do this with kids in therapy all the time. So I'm like, okay, let's pretend, okay, so you be you and I be your mom, because like maybe they're always getting into fights, okay? So I'm going to say what your mom normally says and you say what you normally say. And let's, and so we role play it. Okay. Let's reverse. Okay. Now you be your mom and I'll be you. And you tell me what you would prefer for your mom to say to you instead about this situation. So then we go through that and it's amazing. The kinds of stuff that you'll hear that is so basic and you can find, get an idea of what that kid actually needs from their parent. And so role-playing is a way to build that experience to make it less scary because you've acted it out. So whether it's like, you know, what would you like the flight attendant to say when we get on the plane? What would you want mommy to say as we're boarding? Um, What would you want the swim instructor to say to your sibling when they get to the pool? What would you want to hear from me as we drove up? 
and role-playing that with them, it gives you insight into what they actually want from you. And it's amazing how basic it is that we don't even think about it. So I think role-playing works for everything because it gives you insight into the kid's thoughts and it gives them practice into what they can do when this situation happens. So it brings down the level of anxiety because they've already rehearsed it. So their brain is like tricked into thinking, oh, I know what to do. I've already done this before. And then I can tap into that resource. For me, this is really bringing up a childhood experience I had in fifth grade. I won the D.A.R.E. contest to speak at our graduation and we had a rehearsal and I literally just burst into tears and I couldn't do, I was so scared. And the instructor, the police officer and my parents were so supportive and they were like, we, we really think that you can do this. The D.A.R.E. instructor gave me this um, lion that each of the speech people got to hold during my speech that night. And I did it in front of everyone, like everyone's parents. Wow. The room was way bigger. And it was a really big experience for me in my life to learn, like, you can be really scared and you can still do something. Absolutely. Not to say my life would have gone a completely otherwise way if I would have burst into <laughs> tears again. But it's just this, because I do think like, as parents, we want to be really sensitive to our children. And so I know my friends have had daughters and dance where when it's the performance, you know, they let them not go on the stage because they're really scared of it. And maybe sometimes that's the right choice. But it's been really inspiring to hear your answers to say like, it's okay to help them do things scared. Yeah, because then they learn, oh, it wasn't a big deal or it was a big deal and I did it anyway and I did it while scared, right? And so it's there's lots of lessons that can be learned in it, but there's the lesson that they learn when they avoid is that I was too scared to do it. I wasn't capable of doing it and I believe myself and then here, and then it feels like a failure for them in many times uh, as opposed to just doing it and doing it while scared and feeling brave enough and then looking back and saying, oh, Maybe it wasn't as bad or yeah, no, it was just as bad as I imagined it to be, but I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Cause I did speeches scared for the next 30 years after that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just, that's what it was for me. Yeah. And even being on the today show, like my son asked me, yeah. he's like, were you nervous when you were on there? And I said, when I was in the green room, I was really nervous. Yes. I was looking all around. It was surreal. And then by the time I got to the orange room, like right behind the stage, I was like, I'm excited. Like it yeah, transformed yeah. and I was shaking it off. My husband was there with me. So by the time I got there, I was just super excited. And so there's a little bit of nerves there. And I'm like, but that's, that's an important to know that, of course, if you're on a national show for the first time, you're going to feel nervous. Like that's a normal response, but you do it anyway. <laughs> it, and I love that you shared that with us because we look at you and we're like, she's so intelligent. She's so well-spoken. Like, of course, she would just go up there and nail it. But it's Hoda and it's, you know, this whole, yeah. who wouldn't be a little bit nervous for that? So exactly. I love that. We wanted to shift gears a little bit. So something that our community really struggles with is guilt. And where it really can show up is that these parents, they're feeling so demanded throughout the day, whether they be stay at home, whether they be working. And then their child, my three and a half year old right now is the epitome of this. Like he always wants to play with my husband and I, and he's always like, look at this mom, look at this, come here. Can you play with me? Can you play with me? And so parents have a really hard time saying no, or they do it and they feel like they're really not enjoying it. So I want to, I want you to coach us through this one a little bit. Yes. Okay. So I get this question a lot. I was actually on a panel um, last year about this with the whole idea of play. So one thing for us to keep in mind is Play is a child's language. So just as we use verbal language or sign language or other languages, that's our way primarily of communication. Kids primarily communicate through play. So that's the way they process things, how they work through things, um, how they understand the world. It's very symbolic in that way. So that's how they connect. So when they say play with me, it's a way of connecting as opposed to how was your day? My day was delightful. How was yours? Like that's, they do it more through the play. However, playing is exhausting for many parents and some parents straight up don't like it. <laughs> so I think there's a variety of ways that you can look at this. 
um, one particular way that I encourage parents to do it is just having a set time of uninterrupted, child-focused, child-led time. You have the energy to do 15 or 20 minutes of it being present. Because if you're there, but your mind is elsewhere, your kid's going to pick up on it and it's going to drag out because they're not going to feel like you're fully present with them. Another way of doing it is by observing them, just being on the couch, watching their play and commenting on their play without fully engaging in it. Because many times, like you mentioned, kids just want you to be like, hey, look at me. And so knowing that you're present with them and just in the room with them and delighting in the things that they're delighting in, that may be enough. I do that a lot with my kids. Uh, I did that a lot with my kids when they were younger. They just wanted to show off their thing or do their play or pretend be teacher and just having you observe in it. So playing doesn't always mean having to be in it all the time. Sometimes it's just being approximate. And then the, the last thing I really look at is, them, they're playing and you're not there, but you're checking in. Hey, look, I noticed you're playing with those blocks. Look how high you're stacking them. Hey, mommy's going to finish the dishes and I'll be back in five minutes. Oh my gosh, look at what you've done. That is amazing. Oh my gosh, they fell over. Oh, I think you have to try again. Okay, I'll be back in two minutes. So again, you're connecting and allowing them to see that you are engaged with them in some way. And then sometimes you just don't want to be engaged because you're just exhausted to say, you know what, mommy really needs to nap for a little bit. So in, I don't know, 30 minutes, whatever it is, you know, when the timer goes off, we we can connect again and we'll play together. So I think we have to give ourselves some grace in knowing that it's, it is impossible to show up all the time. We get tapped out, touched out, and just straight up annoyed. And I think we have to communicate with that, that with our kids as well, too. Um, because it's important for them to know that, but it's also important for us to know that when we've had enough as well, too. I love the suggestion of making it like more snackable time, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, like is so much to this kid when it's less to us. And if you can give your focus, I know my three and a half year old, if I'm trying to multitask and I might be on my phone and with him, he'll lift my chin up so that I'm looking directly at him. And I'm like, wow, that's so it's what we all want, right? Like yes. that focused time means more to us than when someone's multitasking right. when they're, but, but of course, as you said, like, we're also not gonna, it's not gonna always be perfect. Sometimes I do say I have to unload the dishwasher. It's part of having a household. So I'm going to do this really quick and then I'll be back. Right. And maybe even engaging them in your activity if they can, you know, being present or playing in the area where you are. So they're playing on the floor while you're unloading the dishwasher. So there's lots of ways to look at it. It doesn't have to be all this this neat little way of looking at it, <clears throat> but just knowing that this is that connection is important to a kid and play is a is the primary way that they do it. What about helping them? or having them help us with the dishwasher. Because I know that's one thing that both of us are trying to work on in our families is having kids take ownership of their own messes, of the messes of the house. But I mean, to be honest, it's way easier just to unload the dishwasher by yourself. Totally. It's way faster. It's going to get done right. You're not going to be you know, ch checking things over and over again. Um, it can be frustrating, but I know that some of our kids, I mean, especially our middle one, loves to help out with that type of stuff. Our oldest does not. So how can we help the kiddos who just don't like to take ownership of the mess to, I mean, just make it be something that they want to do? Should we be forcing them? Should we be inviting them? What does that look like? Well, I think it's about starting young and help having them help in small ways, right? Because yes, is it easier that we just do it all? Absolutely. But is it, it's not teaching them the skill of cleaning up after yourself, of wiping things down, of noticing the messes. So even if it's, you know, the little one clearing off the placemats off the table or wiping down the, the countertop or passing the plastic cups to you while you load them in the dishwasher or taking the socks out of the laundry, like th those kinds of things you can have them engaged with. And having, no matter their age, like tapping into what is it that they like to do? Like I mentioned on Hoda and Jenna, my daughter liking to clean the toilets, right? Um, that she preferred that over take dumping the trash. And so like tapping into that, like you, okay, so then your brother will wipe the countertops and you'll clean the toilet. Like not, it doesn't have to look a certain way, but understanding what is it that they like to do and then engaging them in that activity. So that way they understand, like we told our kids, 
we're all part of this household and we should all contribute to this household. So what does that look like for you? How would you like to contribute to this household? How can we play and work together? I just got a new hamper from Amazon for my son's room. And I'm like, the expectation is that you put these dirty clothes in this hamper because it, I would feel myself getting so frustrated. Like, why do I have to go into each room and grab everyone's dirty clothes when this is like, this is definitely age appropriate. One thing I want to ask you, and I've heard experts say different answers for this is, okay. is it appropriate to give kids money to do chores? Or are you more of the, I've heard experts say, no, like they're a member of the household. People in households need to contribute without getting incentivized. Yes. Yes. I know. There's such a debate about that unnecessarily. Um, (laughs) I don't have any strong feelings either way, but one of the things that we do um, in our household is for things that are contributing to the basic household and upkeep, they don't get paid for that. Actually, they don't get paid for anything <laughs> right now. <laughs> we, if they want something, we just, we talk about it. We look at it. We, um, they may get money from other sources in terms of grandparents or birthdays or whatever, or we just get it for them. So it's like, it doesn't become like this big deal to incentivize things, but for basic things around the household, I think that it shouldn't be about, I make my bed, give me $5. You know, I clean the dishes, you know, give me $10. Uh, I think that it should be a general work ethic and a, you know, your contribution to the household is because you're part of the house and you care about the upkeep. Um, so I think that um, kind of giving money for those things, I don't think that's as, I don't think that's a really as good of a, um, message to send to kids because we want them to know that it's not like I do this, I get this. Because what I, what I've seen and how it backfires is sometimes kids will be like, well, I don't need any more money, so I don't have to do this. Or I did this, where's my money at? (laughs) So I think sometimes that positive reinforcement cycle can be sabotaged because now they don't care about it as much and it kind of loses its appeal. So I think if you do want to give money for certain things, I think it should be the things that are above and beyond things that aren't just the regular maintenance of the household. Yeah. I think just like life skills too. I remember some of my college boyfriends would always take their laundry home to their mom. <laughs> and I was like, you have to know how to do laundry to live in the world. Yes. Like, yes, you do. You know, you've got to figure that out. So this entire conversation has just been jam-packed with wisdom and we can't wait to share it with our community. We know our audience is going to want to learn more from you and most of them already know who you are, but for anyone who doesn't, please let them know where they can find you. Yes, absolutely. So they can find me on my website at a new day sa.com. So it's my practice here in San Antonio. Um, and then I'm most active on Instagram at dr.annelouise.lockhart and uh, Facebook for um <laughs> for the people who are still on Facebook at a new day pediatric psychology. I've had people tell me lots of things. Oh, that's for old people. I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> mm, if you guys enjoyed this episode, we would love to see you share it on Instagram, tagging both of our accounts. 